Support for OPB comes from our members and from our sponsors, like Mike Rosenberg from Columbia Credit Union. Mike says they trust what they see and hear on OPB, and that aligns with Columbia Credit Union's brand. This is Think Out Loud on OPB. I'm Dave Miller. We end today with efforts to remove former President Donald Trump from 2024 ballots. These efforts are underway in a number of states, including in Oregon. The challenges rest on a clause in the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. It prohibits anyone who has engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the United States from holding various elected offices. The Secretary of State in Maine and the Colorado Supreme Court have found the argument persuasive. They say that the former president cannot be on their primary ballots. Oregon Secretary of State LaVon Griffin-Belade said about a month ago that she does not have the authority to do that. The U.S. Supreme Court is going to be the final arbiter in all of these questions nationwide. All of these different cases have been appealed in various places. Norman Williams teaches election and constitutional law at Willamette University College of Law, and he joins us to talk about all of this. Welcome back to the show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's good to have you on. So the text of this constitutional provision is written, and maybe this is not unusual, but in a a convoluted way. So I've um, made it as clear as I can. It basically says that if you engage in insurrection or rebellion against the United States or help the enemies of the United States after having taken an oath to support the U.S. Constitution as a member of Congress— or while holding various other elected offices, then you cannot be a member of Congress or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state. So that's the a version of the text of it. Um, when and why was this amendment added to the U.S. Constitution? Great question. So this amendment was uh, added in 1868 in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War. And this particular provision of the 14th Amendment was designed to prevent former Confederates um, who had served in Congress uh, uh, prior to the Civil War uh, from being reelected uh, either uh, to uh, to Congress or from serving in any office in any of the southern states after the southern states uh, were readmitted. The notion was that the, the those Confederates had been disloyal to the United States, to their oath of office to support the United States, and they shouldn't be part of the uh, American political life going forward. So 155, 156 years ago in the aftermath of probably the the greatest cataclysm our country has ever known, how much has this provision um, been applied or enforced since then? Not much. Uh, The framers of the 14th Amendment um, expressly made it for more than just former Confederates. There was talk about Uh, applying it just to the Confederates, but they worded it in a prospective fashion um, to apply to future insurrections or rebellions. And uh, there have been instances as recently as 1920 in which uh, uh, individuals have been held disqualified from office because of participating either in insurrection or rebellion or uh, by giving aid or comfort to enemies of the United States. Um, The most recent example was in 1920 uh, and involved someone who had been viewed as providing support to Germany uh, in World War I. Hmm. 
Uh, that seems like a relatively clear-cut case. If somebody was seen to have been providing support to a country that the United States was fighting against in a world war, that's right. That's right. And one of the uh, issues that President Trump is using in his defense um, uh, against this this measure is that January sixth was not an insurrection, uh, and that what he said on January sixth was not tantamount to engaging uh, in the insurrection, even if it uh, was one. And that's a, a much more difficult question than whether someone who uh, has you know, provided uh, arms to an enemy combatant with whom we're at war. I want to turn back to the question of, of whether or not um, what President Trump did um, on January 6th or in the, in the weeks leading up to it um, would qualify as an insurrection. We can come back to that and how courts uh, are, are either have have addressed that head on or or may address it going forward. But I, I want to turn for a second back to the language of the provision. How significant is it that it does not specifically mention the office of the president? Uh, that's it's it's going to be a, a difficult question that the U.S. Supreme Court is going to ultimately have. Uh, to address, because again, President Trump is emphasizing that the uh, the word "president of the United States" um, uh, is not mentioned uh, as one of the offices from which you're disqualified from holding office, nor is it mentioned as the type of person uh, who can be disqualified uh, from holding office uh, in the in the future. And it is a um, notable admission from the text that President of the United States uh, doesn't appear uh, in uh, in Section 3. The Colorado Supreme Court, though, and the main Secretary of State was not persuaded that that omission should be given uh, any credence, that the text of, of Article 3 does refer to any officer under the United States, refers to uh, someone who um, had been an executive an officer of the United States who had taken the relevant oath from being disqualified and more importantly made the common sense judgment that the framers of Section 3 wanted to disqualify individuals who'd been disloyal to the United States even in fairly insignificant roles such as a, um, a member of state legislature or judicial officer of any state. Surely the framers of the 14th Amendment weren't trying to authorize a disloyal future president, uh, that that if they were going to disqualify former Confederates from being U.S. senators, they surely didn't want former Confederates being president of the United States. Is the uh, thinking that, the that that with, say, Grant or, or the then-dead Lincoln as the most recent examples of presidents, that – that they, the framers just couldn't – wouldn't have envisioned that a U.S. president would have engaged in, in insurrection against their country? I mean, is is that – I mean, and does it even matter to try to get into the, the framers of this provisions, their heads? No, you're exactly right. And this is precisely the argument that both the Colorado Supreme Court and the main secretary of state seized upon is that the intent of the framers of Section 3 was clear. Uh, which is that someone who's been disloyal to the United States after taking an oath of to support the Constitution um, shouldn't be able to hold any office. 
uh, and that the um, the phrase "any office under the United States" includes the presidency uh, as as well. And so, uh, the presidency, just like Congress, is an office that someone is disbarred from ever uh, holding once they've been um, disloyal. Now, there is one more line in this provision that I didn't read before because it was already long, (laughs) Um, but I want to turn to it now. It says that basically even if you did engage in an insurrection, even if you were found to have um, been been liable under the the previous parts of the paragraph, um, you can in a sense have it be washed away and you can serve in the future if there's a two-thirds vote in both chambers of the Congress, meaning the House and the Senate. Has that ever happened? Yes, uh, Congress has used its amnesty authority uh, on multiple times um, following the the wake of the Civil War. In fact, passed um, a a general amnesty, basically relieving all former Confederates uh, of this disqualification um, several decades after the the Civil War. Um, And Congress has used this amnesty power kind of individually uh, as well in the wake of the Civil War. Um, civil war. I mean, fortunately, because uh, until January 6th, uh, we haven't uh, suffered an insurrection or rebellion prior to January 6th for a, for a long, long time, Congress hasn't uh, had the occasion to use its amnesty authority uh, in over a century. Huh, but it does, it, it's fascinating to me that that even the exact people that this provision was put in the Constitution to prevent from, from serving, there was a blanket amnesty a couple de- decades later and and large majorities in Congress said, no, you all can serve. That's right. That's right. And at the time, it was viewed as part of the end of Reconstruction of let's put the Civil War behind us. Let's just uh, let's just move on. Um, the the notion that the Confederacy or former Confederates were going to take over uh, the United States that fear had dissipated. Um, by that uh, by that point, um, it's interesting to note that President Trump is relying upon this provision uh, both in Oregon and uh, in his arguments to the, the United States Supreme Court seeking review from the Colorado decision. Um, President Trump is suggesting that hey, next January Congress uh, would remove uh, this disability if he's uh, he's elected, and that's one of his arguments for why he should be allowed to. Uh, remain on the ballot that that Congress could use its amnesty authority next January uh, to remove the, this disqualification. Uh, the fact that they can does not mean at all. I mean, it seems like a gross misreading of political realities to assume um, that that a single Democrat um, would would make that vote. But we'll we'll set that aside. I just want to remind folks if you're just tuning in. We're talking right now about the effort to remove former President Donald Trump from ballots in a number of states across the country, including in Oregon. So let's turn squarely to Oregon because we've been talking about U.S. constitutional questions. But but at the state level, what does Oregon law say about who can appear on a ballot and, and who can prevent them from being on a ballot? Uh, so Oregon requires candidates uh, for office um, to state as part of their um, their petition for the candidacy or statement of candidacy that they will qualify for the office. And so uh, former secretaries of state um, uh, have used that provision uh, to disqualify from the ballot individuals who, in their opinion, uh, were 
not qualified to serve in the office. The most recent example is um, Nicholas Kristof, who was going to run for the Democratic Party's nomination for uh, the governorship, uh, who was uh, uh, disqualified uh, by the Secretary of State on the grounds that he wasn't a resident uh, of Oregon, that he was a resident of New York uh, instead. And so this disqualification from the ballot authority has been used by um, the Secretary of State in the past. What was the current Oregon Secretary of State's reasoning back in November when she declined to bar Donald Trump from Oregon's primary ballot? Uh, So the current Secretary of State drew a distinction uh, between uh, state offices generally and the presidential nomination, uh, in particular the Secretary of State Griffin uh, uh, Valte. Um, made the argument that, well, the presidential nomination is special because you're not actually nominating Donald Trump. What you're really doing is nominating a bunch of individuals whose names don't appear on the ballot who will be delegates pledged to Donald Trump to attend the Republican National Convention, and the Republican National Convention might not even choose Donald Trump as its nominee. And so the presidential nomination process in Oregon is not really choosing a nominee for the office. It's just choosing delegates for a national convention. And and so she reasoned uh, um, uh, she didn't have the uh, authority to decide whether his name should appear on the the, uh, May primary ballot. Could that same sort of understandable but slightly convoluted reasoning – be applied even to the general election, given the the electoral college realities. That's exactly right. Uh, that uh, in November, in the general election, we're not actually electing uh, Joe Biden or Donald Trump or or whoever the nominees might be. We're electing uh, individuals who whose name do not appear on the ballot who will serve as presidential electors pledged uh, to that person. So to carry um, the Secretary of State's uh, kind of logic to its to its logical conclusion, the Secretary of State has no authority uh, in uh, presidential contests to uh, not include someone's name on the uh, on the ballot, and that I think is uh, uh, kind of a dangerous and uh, 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 way to go uh, because what sh- what the Secretary of State's position is essentially saying is that uh, a court might disqualify. This individual, but uh, but I can't, and if I don't, that leaves the, the voters unable to make a real choice on either the primary ballot or the general election ballot, uh, because it will be only after that election that some court has to decide uh, this question. You know, the, even if you set aside questions of whether it's your name on the ballot that really matters as a candidate or or a slate of electors, the Fourteenth Amendment. It doesn't talk about being on the ballot for a primary or a general election. It talks about people not being able to hold office. Are those the same thing from the perspective of constitutional law? Um, They are because uh, uh, we want the people to choose the officers, executive, legislative, judicial. Uh, And so it really makes – Kind of only a hyper technical lawyer could love a a legal framework in which an a person ineligible to serve in the office is nevertheless put on the ballot, potentially elected, but then disqualified by a court 
after the fact. Um, a hyper-technical lawyer or somebody who it doesn't want to be seen as as replacing the will of the voters, which which does seem to be one of the, the big arguments that, that even, you know, in this case, a Democratic Secretary of State, even if she's not making it, it it's 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 not, it's possible that that's in her mind that that she doesn't want to be seen as a person who is removing choice from voters. That's right. That's right. But that's what qualifications for office do. Uh, mm-hmm. The United States Constitution provides other qualifications for the presidency. You have to be 35 years old. You have to be a citizen, a natural born citizen of the United States. You had to be a resident of the United States for 14 years. The people don't get the choice to put on the Oregon ballot or in any state, a 18-year-old as a candidate for president of the United States. And so qualifications for office by their very nature disable the people from choosing someone that they might want to choose. And Section 3 of the 14th Amendment disqualifies from office uh, individuals who've served office uh, before but been disloyal uh, to the United States. Well, so then let's turn back to the one of the, the most important – once you get past some of the technicalities of the, the weirdness of our electoral system, there is still at the heart of this provision the question of people who have engaged in an insurrection or a rebellion against the U.S. How much helpful precedent is there for what – engaging in an insurrection means? <laughs> uh, great question, and the answer is virtually none. Uh, 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 again, what an insurrection is, is uh, hotly, hotly debated. Um, uh, we can use the Civil War uh, as, an exa- as an example, but the uh, Section 3 refers to rebellion as something different than an insurrection. Uh, and so the Civil War uh, was viewed as a rebellion. The January 6th Committee uh, of Congress, which investigated uh, the events of January 6, 2021, concluded that January 6th was, in fact, um, uh, an insurrection. Uh, but that is not a self-defining term. And President Trump's lawyers have made uh, arguments that, well, January 6th, was really more just a, a demonstration or at worst a riot that it didn't rise to the level of an insurrection. And so this is kind of one of the the, the key issues that the U.S. Supreme Court will will ask to, to be to, uh, will have to decide. What are you expecting from the U.S. Supreme Court? And we'll hopefully find out uh, tomorrow or, or Monday whether this, uh, the Supreme Court is uh, um, going to hear uh, uh, the appeal from the Colorado Supreme Court, and if so, on what timeline? Um, I, I and is, is that is would you be surprised if they didn't take it up? I mean, I, the sense I got is that the sense I've gotten for years is that when there are disagreements from state to state, that is, the, and for, on important questions, it's the exact time when when the court is most likely to, to say, yes, we, we will be the final arbiter, unless, <laughs> unless there are reasons they don't want to weigh in. That's exactly right. And I would be shocked if they don't take this case, because if they don't take this case now, um, taking it later uh, would only be in the midst of the primary, even further into the midst of the primary campaign. And not taking it all seems inconceivable that the court would allow this patchwork, this quilt of 
Trump appearing on the ballot in some states, but not in other states, um, that wouldn't be healthy for democracy or for our constitutional system of, of government. There needs to be a definitive answer as to whether President Trump is former President Trump is disqualified from future office and only the U.S. Supreme Court can give that answer and it should give that answer sooner rather than later. Are you opinion. expecting a, a substantive ruling from the Roberts Court that, that addresses head-on whether or not the former president engaged in insurrection or m- something more like the Obamacare case or or, or other cases where, where – the court tries to answer the question uh, in in a in a more um, just sort of legal uh, you know detail way that somehow parries. It really depends on on what they hold. If if they uh, if a majority of them are prepared to hold that President Trump is not disqualified from office, there are three ways for them to do so without having to answer the question whether January 6th was an insurrection. And it goes back to what we were talking about before. Is the president subject to this disqualification? Is a former president a person who's, uh, um, uh, whose disloyalty could disqualify them? And there's a third issue, which is, again, also pretty hyper-technical, that the presidential oath is not the type of oath of loyalty that can be the subject of disqualification. President Trump has emphasized that Section 3 uh, only applies to officers who've taken an oath to support the Constitution. The president doesn't take that oath. The presidential oath only talks about preserving and defending the Constitution, not supporting it. And so the U.S. Supreme Court might say, well, the presidency is not an office uh, from which you can be disqualified, end of story, and not address whether January 6th was an insurrection. For President Trump to be deemed disqualified, to kind of take this hypothetical, if we think that there are five justices or more of the current U.S. Supreme Court prepared to disqualify him, they have to decide whether January 6th was an insurrection. Uh, or not. And so um, uh, it all depends on what is the ultimate result uh, that the U.S. Supreme Court wants to reach as to how many of these legal arguments uh, they will discuss. Norman Williams, thanks very much. Thank you for having me. Norman Williams is a professor at Willamette University's College of Law. Finally today, our managing producer, Shiraz Sadiq, joins me to read some of your recent feedback. Hey, Shiraz. Hey, Dave. Earlier this week, we talked with a few resorts about the lackluster start to ski season. We asked listeners if the warmer weather and lack of snow had affected their winter plans. Diane Cress-Hauer wrote on Facebook, No, but all my loved ones are blue and tourists are not visiting Central Oregon. C.A. Fry said, we were planning on going snowshoeing for our anniversary next week. Kristen Gustafson said, skiing? I'm thinking about planting. Trees are budding. David Shore was more optimistic. He said, send it. We always get plenty of snow by April. About a month ago, we talked about a proposed plan from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to save endangered spotted owls. It involves shooting thousands of barred owls, which are out-competing spotted owls for habitat and for food. Bleak as that sounds, Dave Quady wrote in from Berkeley, California to voice his support. He says, 
I am a certified owl freak with broad-ranging interests that include the welfare of northern spotted owls anywhere, but maybe especially in Oregon. I visit it often and have pursued spotted owls there since the 1980s. I closely followed the experimental removals of barred owls from traditional northern spotted owl habitat and wholeheartedly agree with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Plan to facilitate and encourage the removal of barred owls where landowners or stewards are willing to do so. Thanks very much for a very well done program. Michael Edwards had a different perspective. He wrote, if Trump gets back into office, he's going to allow logging on the remaining old growth BLM forest land. We know this. So at the same time, independent contractors and landowners are out bagging barred owls. Oops, was that a spotted owl? They look so similar in low light, you know. Georgia Pacific will be rendering the BLM forest into toilet paper and Amazon boxes. He added, I apologize for the cynicism without you ever being explicit or mean. Your questions lay bare the increasingly limited means and will that the government has to improve society. As much as I love your show, my New Year's resolution includes a think-out-loud diet. Just before the holidays, we talked with Portland artist Yoon-hee Choi, who's working on a pair of giant glass wall hangings to decorate the security area of the renovated Portland International Airport. We asked folks what kind of art you would like to see at the airport. George Hart wrote something airy, something uplifting. I'm just winging it. Valerie Griffiths Brown wrote the kind that can be a kid's playground or can be slept on or can hold little free libraries. Candy Roberts said the kind that includes more charging ports. Adam Hill said interactive, local, with a strong focus on indigenous art. Portland exhibits very little recognition of its indigenous communities. Jesse Gorman wrote, there should be an area that features art from middle and high school students. Every month, a school should be picked and the students' creations should be displayed. Bettis Chris was more practical. They said, cheap or none at all to keep my ticket prices low. I don't give a single care about how an airport looks. Get me from point A to point B as fast, efficiently, and cheaply as possible because I don't want to be there either way, no matter how it looks. Celine Strowinski had an interesting take. She said she'd like to see, <laughs> I can't believe she wrote this, but realistic paintings of plane crashes. Jesse Gorman replied, morbid but satisfying. Ted Fountain wrote, a showcase of what makes Oregon the great place that it is. And Linda Louise Scott had no notes. She said, somebody's been doing a great job. I love what I've seen there. We always welcome your emails and comments in whatever form. Our address is thinkoutloud at opb.org. Our voicemail number is 503-293-1983. On Facebook, we are at OPBTOL. Thanks, Shiraz. You're welcome, Dave. Tomorrow on the show, a professor of pediatrics at OHSU was recently chosen to lead the American Academy of Pediatrics. We'll talk with Ben Hoffman about his new role and what he sees as the biggest issues in children's healthcare nationwide. If you don't want to miss any of our shows, you can listen on the NPR app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Our nightly rebroadcast is at 8 p.m. Thanks very much for tuning in to Think Out Loud on OPB and KLCC. I'm Dave Miller. We'll be back tomorrow. Think Out Loud is supported by Steve and Jan Oliva, the Rose E. Tucker Charitable Trust, Ray and Marilyn Johnson, and the Susan Hammer Fund of the Oregon Community Foundation.
If you tune in to Think Out Loud because you love learning about what's happening in our region, you'll love listening to The Evergreen. This weekly podcast paints an audio portrait of the Pacific Northwest through the stories of the people who live here. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.